the cross, Lord. It was a death that we deserved, but you took the place of us, Lord. And thank you for your love, your passionate love that you poured out for us on the cross. Thank you for showing the world that you wouldn't take any cost into consideration when it came to your love for your people, Lord. Thank you for showing us your heart. Pray that we would long to serve you, long to love you like you love us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Good morning, everyone. There we go. Good hearty. Good. Let's try it again. Good morning, everyone. There it is. Love it. So pizza without meat is just gross. Okay, I'm sorry if you're a vegetarian and like pizza without meat. In my opinion, pizza without meat, uh-uh, not happening. Mountain Dew without caffeine. What's the point? Okay, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwich without peanut butter and jelly. You're just eating a couple pieces of bread. Weird. Uh, chips without salt. Just like eating cardboard. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why you do it. Now, this is probably one we can all agree on. Rhubarb pie without sugar. Horrible. Yeah. Yeah, shout out to Mick Johnston. He came up with that one. Um, here's the point. First Corinthians 13. Spiritual gifts are horrible without love. He's talking in chapter 12 all about spiritual gifts. He's talking in chapter 14 all about spiritual gifts. We have chapter 13, the love chapter, the wedding chapter. Maybe it shouldn't, it shouldn't be called the wedding chapter because it's actually about love between one another within the body of Christ. And sure, that includes marriages, but that's not the primary application. The primary application is loving each other as we use our spiritual gifts. So if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 13 with me. We're going to walk through it. And I'm excited about this. We've had some really tough passages to grapple with. We have a passage that really just speaks for itself. And I, I mean, I could just sit up here and stand up here and, and read it over and over. And I think that would do it justice this morning. It's that beautiful. It's, it's, it's that great. So uh, let's read it and I'll attempt to say some things about it. The hard part is living it out though, like most scripture, right? So 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. These first three verses, here's the idea. Love is the key ingredient to spiritual gifts. Love's the key ingredient to spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are necessary. Paul isn't starting here and going, hey, you know what, spiritual gifts, don't worry about those. No, because he, he continues in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. He's just saying they're ineffective without love infused into them. And he goes after these gifts that the Corinthians were abusing first. He, you know, you, if you speak in tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, 
He's saying if you use these in, the, in an incredible degree where people are just like, whoa. It's like rhubarb pie without sugar that doesn't have love. It's pointless. It's horrible. So he uses three descriptions. He has three descriptions of himself without love in here. In verse 1 he says, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This means he's annoying. He's agitating. It's like a fly buzzing around and you can't quite get it, right? It's going past your ear. You don't you hate that? That happened to me several times this week. And it's just, oh, it's, it's, that's what spiritual gifts without love are like. And then he says in verse 2, I am nothing if I don't have love. This is an identity statement. He's saying, I'm insignificant and worthless if I don't have love. And certainly, Paul has worth. We have worth because we're made in the image of God and Paul. And for anyone who believes in Jesus is a child of God. But he's saying in using your spirit, spiritual gifts, you're making no impact. They're worthless. You're nothing without love. And then his third statement, I, in verse 3, I gain nothing. Saying, I'll have no reward here or for eternity. It's pointless. a waste of time. It'd be like uh, entering a race where they say, hey, if you win this race, let's say it's a marathon. If you win this marathon, you're going to get a million dollars. So you train and train and train. And you end up winning the race. And they go, just kidding. It's a scam. We're not giving you a million dollars. That's what using spiritual gifts is like without love. You gain nothing. You get nothing from it. So think for a minute. Stonebridge Church could have great worship music, could faithfully preach the Bible, could have a D6 children's ministry in VBS that's going well, have several connection groups going on, have biblically rich women's ministry, men's ministry, have a relevant, effective youth ministry. We could faithfully serve the local schools, reach out to the community, do bag hunger, do all of this stuff. Yet, we would just be annoying, insignificant, extravagant wastes of time as a church if we didn't do those things in love. We could just put on a good show here. If we don't have love. This is scary. Things could look great from a human perspective. But without the love of God flowing through us out to other people as we do ministry, as we reach out to people relationally, God just disregards it. This isn't Paul just talking. Remember, this is God's word. So God is saying, yeah, I don't really, your efforts are worthless. I don't really care if you're doing this stuff and you don't have love. To make it more personal, you could faithfully attend church. You could faithfully attend a connection group. You, you could use your talents, your giftings in children's ministry, worship, youth, facilities, whatever. You could faithfully give financially to the church. You could be faithful to your spouse. You could be actively involved in your kids' lives. You could read your Bible and pray regularly. You could be building relationships with neighbors and coworkers and sharing the gospel with people. But if you don't do those things without love, you're just annoying, insignificant, waste of time. This is scary. If I'm up here preaching today and I don't have love for you as I, I'm speaking to you, what's the point? We need a rewiring from how our culture has defined love. And we have to get love right. We have to get love right or we're just wasting our time. We're wasting our breath. 
But first, let's look at why love is so important. So I want to I jump down to verse 8 in this passage. So here's the point. This is my second point in the morning. Love's eternality makes it the key ingredient to using spiritual gifts. The fact that it lasts forever. Verse 8, it says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but I shall, but then I shall know fully, even as, as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The reason why spiritual gifts have to be used with love is because love lasts forever. Spiritual gifts don't last forever. That's what he's saying here. In heaven, we're going to be with Jesus, and we won't have any need for spiritual gifts. We're going to be completely built up and loved by Jesus with no effects of sin between one another. So he says in verse 13, faith, hope, and love. So faith, faith is a present trust in God and his saving work on the cross. It's present. Right now, we're trusting God in what he did through Jesus. Hope, hope is a present confidence in what Jesus is going to do, that he's going to make us his own, bring us into eternity with him forever because of what Christ did. But love is not just a present thing. Love is a present and a future thing. That's why it's greater. We have, we'll, think about this. You'll have no need for faith and for hope when everything's perfect and you're with Jesus. You have nothing to hope in. Your hope is already realized. You have nothing to trust in. Your trust is already realized. You don't have to trust. You, you just know it because he's right there. Everything's perfect. Everything's great. But love will continue forever in relationship with us, between one another and God in heaven forever. Here's why love is the key to spiritual gifts, because it lasts forever. Spiritual gifts will not. A lot more could be said about that. Let's move on to the next section. Third point, the key ingredients to love. Here's the key ingredients to love. So we've said that the key ingredient to spiritual gifts is love, but what does love look like? What are the ingredients of love? Let's go to verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So in context, he's saying these character qualities are what the Corinthians are lacking. He's very purposeful. He's actually rebuking the Corinthians when he gives this list. Okay, he's saying... Hey, these are the ways that you are failing at loving one another. So I'm just going to blow through this really quickly. But Paul, in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, starts out and goes, and, and he's really patient and really kind with a really messed up church. And then the Corinthians are envying, they're boasting, they're arrogant about their human leaders. Remember, I'm following Paul, I'm following 
Apollos, they, they, they had tribalism. I'm, I'm, I'm following this guy, I'm following that guy, and they're really envying each other, boasting, arrogant. That was chapters 2 through 4. And then the Corinthians were acting, dressing, and praying in really rude ways we saw in chapter 11. And even were getting drunk on the communion wine we saw, which is, which is ridiculous and rude. Corinthians were insisting on their own way. Even if it caused other people to stumble. We saw that in chapter 8. The Corinthians were rejoicing at the wrongdoing of a sexually immoral man in chapter 5. They were celebrating it. And then the Corinthians were not bearing with each other through unnecessary lawsuits in chapter 6. And we could just go on and on. But this list isn't just this random list. It's not like a poem that's, that's dropped in 1 Corinthians and isn't part of the rest of it. That's how it's often read at weddings, right? No, this is very purposeful. He's going after the Corinthians. They're failing at love in very specific ways. Now, all of these things he mentions in this section describe love. And here's, here's my working definition of love. Actively being selfless toward other people. Actively being selfless toward other people. All of these traits are selfless, require selflessness. All these traits require you to be active. You know, the, the phrase love is a verb. It's an action. It's not just something you talk about. Now, again, I, I can't stress this enough. This was written primarily not for marriages and for weddings. This was written for all relationships in the church, all the relationships we have with one another right here. So how are you doing at these? Especially while you're serving other people with your gifts in the church. How are you doing? So I have some questions to be thinking about. Are you patient with others? Because love is patient. That, that literally means long suffering. How long does it take for you to overreact to other people? Are you quick to offer grace to other people when they don't meet your expectations? Or are you quick to go off on them? Or are you passively, aggressively complaining to others about them? I need to have patience. I need to have grace with people as I teach them about the Bible. Anyone, anyone who's a teacher in any way knows that you have to have patience because sometimes it takes days, weeks, months, years for people to learn certain things. As we use our gifts, we, we have to be patient. Are you kind to others? David Platt says this, this is not just passive endurance of others, but active goodness toward others. It's like patience in action. You're not just putting up with other people as you serve them and as you use your gifts, but you're seeking their good. You're saying, how can I help others who are hurting? Maybe you have the gift of administration. Do you do it selflessly, with joy, to serve other people? You're the detail person. You love, you love to kind of be in the background and, and serve in these ways. Or are you just complaining and grumbling the whole time? Oh, I have to do this and do that, and I never really get noticed, blah, blah, blah. I mean, love is kind. It's patient. does not envy. Are you envious of what other people have? This word is synonymous with jealousy or unhealthy comparison to other people. And the antonym of this is contentedness. How content are you 
with how God has wired you and gifted you. Or are you too focused on other people's talents and gifts? You're like, you know what, they have the same gift that I do and they do it so much better and you're playing the comparison game rather than focusing on just using your gift to serve other people. Are you envious? Do you boast about what you have? I learned a word this week. I learn words every once in a while. Uh, Ostentatious. I was reading a commentary. I was like, I have no idea what that means. Uh, It means intended to draw attention. When you serve other people, do you do it just just to get noticed, to draw attention to yourself, to be ostentatious? When you post on social media about different ways that you're serving, maybe even you go on a mission trip and, and, and you post about I did this and I did that. And I'm not saying that's wrong to do. That might be a great thing to do. But this has to do with your heart. When you're posting things like that, that, that show you serving other people, are you doing it just to get noticed? Because love doesn't boast. Are you ever arrogant before other people? This literally means to be puffed up. You have an inflated, unhealthy view of yourself. I think of like at basketball games when they're shooting the free throws and they got the guys with the big heads, you know, the the big signs of the big heads, right? Does that happen to you? What's your gut response when people point out your mistakes? Are you defensive? Are you unapproachable? Are you arrogant? Are you ever rude to other people? Are you naturally offensive, brash, short with people? See, the antonym of being rude is being kind. If you're rude, you don't give a rip about how things will affect people, things that you say, things that you do. You know we never have a right to be rude or brash, even with the truth. Even when you know something is right, this is right, this is true, this is found in the Bible. You have no right to be rude with that truth under any circumstance because love is not rude. Maybe you discern and see that something's not quite right with the situation. Something's not right with this person or, you, or it's just overt and you see sin in that person's life. And, and so do you go to them and are you rude about it? Are you gentle? Are you kind? Are you seeking their good? Do you want things your own way all the time? You insist on your own way. I think that's everyone's struggle to some degree, right? We're selfish. Your primary focus is Not on others' good, but on your own good. You know, some, you know, oftentimes, not oftentimes, sometimes your idea of how to do something as you're serving in a church ministry isn't always the best. That's why we have the body of Christ. We need to be open handed with our ideas. And I wrote right here in my notes in bold I said, listen to yourself, Matt. just to be candid with you, I mean, that, that's really difficult for me. When I'm like, I think we should do something here with this ministry in our church and that, and we should do this and that and that. Well, guess what? I'm not a dictator around here. 
We function in plurality with elders and, and other teams of people. And so I need to come open-handed with those ideas. So do the rest of us. Because love doesn't insist on its own way. Are you irritable when things don't go your own way? Are you touchy because of selfish desires? Do you become a grouch when your kids are acting up at home or in the D6 classroom? Are you a jerk when others don't come through on details? This is hard to preach through. I feel really guilty every time I say something. (laughs) I have a lot of work to do myself. So if you're feeling convicted, welcome to the club. Um, Do you keep any record of others' wrongs? Are you resentful? Do you never actually let go of things that other people did to harm you or to hurt you? Do you keep a mental list of each person and how they harmed you? Do you have, like, in your mind, here's Abby. She thinks I'm worthless and criticized my guitar playing. Jim picked his nose and flicked the booger at me. Why did I bet? Um, Called me stupid. Ate my cereal. Whatever. These are really childish ones I wrote down. You probably have more sophisticated lists in your mind, right? But do do you keep a list? Of how other people have harmed you and wronged you. You know, often this list includes items that aren't even reality. We write something like, I think that they think I'm an idiot. Okay, wait. You don't even know if that's true. And you put that, you put that on your list. You're keeping that as a record of wrong. Those items have to be deleted immediately. The devil loves to play with stuff like that. You have three choices when you have lists like this, when you're harboring things against other people, keeping records of wrong. You can keep the list to yourself and be bitter. But it's been said that harboring bitterness in your heart is like drinking poison and waiting for someone else to die. doesn't make sense. If you're drinking poison, that other person's not going to die. You're going to die. Bitterness corrupts, kills you from the inside out. So you can keep it. But it, it won't be pretty. You can go to them with the list. You can come graciously, assuming the best in the other person. And say, hey, when you did this, it made me feel this way. And I want to assume that you weren't trying to hurt me. But that's what happened. Can we talk about this? I want to get things right with you and me. Those are hard conversations. They have to be done with the right tone. They have to be done with gentleness, with grace. Assuming the best in the other person. Or... A third option is you can ask God to just help you take that list and throw it in the trash. Proverbs 19.11 says, it's to his glory to overlook an offense. Often, you need to just take stuff that other people said, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and just go, you know what? I'm not going to hold that against them. I'm just going to let that one go. Maybe you serve on the worship team here. Maybe you're involved in our children's ministry. Maybe you're a youth leader, a connection group leader. And, or maybe you're just involved in a connection group and someone has hurt you with a comment or an action. Love will go to them or they'll overlook it. 
It's not easy. But love isn't. It's active. It's selfless. Being actively selfless is always difficult, but it's, but it's worth it. You keep a record of wrongs with other people. Do you find any pleasure when other people do wrong? It's probably like, of course not. Of course not. I don't do that. I don't keep, I, I, I don't find any pleasure when other people do wrong. Okay. Well, think of someone you don't like very much. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a politician. Are you pleased in any way when they fail at something? That's delighting in wrongdoing. Are you actively pointing out and celebrating other people's gifts and talents? You know, simple thank yous go a really long way. When someone who shares the same gift with you and you see it and you see them really thriving, are you genuinely glad and excited for them or you just start comparing yourself? You know, Joey and I, I guess I can't speak for Joey, but I, I, I assume this. And, but I love it when Joey does a great job and preaches a better sermon than I ever could. Because I, because I desire to delight when other people are doing right and using their gifts well. And it certainly has been a temptation for me to go, oh, man, I, I don't do that well. But God gives me grace to go, you know what, no. I love that. I love that God's using Joey in that way. Moving along in the list, verse 7. Do you tire of support for other people? Love bears all things. This literally means to put up with other people. There's always going to be people who are difficult for you to love. And guess what? You never have a license to say, sorry, they're too hard to love. Maybe you're in a connection group with a person that's battling a tendency to be harsh with other people. And they're, they're harsh with you one week and then they come to you and apologize. And then they're harsh the next week and they come to you and apologize. You never have permission to give up on them. Because love bears all things. If they're, if they're screwing up in that way but they're actively working on that and they're owning it, repentant when they screw up, we don't have permission to be done with them. Do you believe all things? Do you hold on to faith for other pe- people? It's not saying that we always believe everything that other people say. That's not, that's not what it means to believe all things. It is saying we will be willing to believe for them. You know, there's days where life is really difficult and it's really hard to trust God and to follow Jesus. We're saying, you know what, on those days, I'm going to help remind you of what's true and love on you and carry you along. Think of like a soldier in the middle of a battlefield and he steps on a grenade and his legs just get blown off. What does the soldier next to him do? He goes, oh, yep, your legs are blown off. Sorry, man. See you later. No, he picks him up, right? Carries him to help. That's what it means to believe all things, to hold on to faith for other people on days when it is so difficult and it just feels like their legs are blown off spiritually. You pick them up and you remind them of what's true. believe for them in a sense. Love hopes all things. Do you lose hope for other people? 
You know, love never says, that one's too far, far gone for God to change. Other people that you've just written off as hopeless and you don't even pray for them. You just think they're a hopeless cause. And then, do you endure trials with other people? When people are going through the worst, do you call them? Do you text them? Do you visit them? Do you listen to them? Do you cook for them? Do you clean for them? Whatever, do you serve them? You know, our tendency is to pull away from people when they're, in, go, when they're going through trials and hardship. It's too hard. I don't know how to love them. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. But love draws near to the brokenhearted. So I want us to do something together. I have these verses, verses 4 through 7, up on the screen with blanks every time it says love. And I actually want us to out loud together read this, inserting our name. Okay? Here we go. Matt is patient and kind. Matt does not envy or boast. Matt is not arrogant or rude. Matt does not insist on his own way. Matt is not irritable or resentful. Time out, time out. I can't read that small. Okay, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Matt bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now here's what I want you to do. I just want you to take a couple minutes in silence and think which one of those felt the most hypocritical for me to say just now. And spend some time, we're going we're gonna to do communion in a few minutes. Just spend some time confessing to God. Yeah, God, I, I'm not loving other people in this way well. I'm rude. I'm impatient. Confess that to God. Repent. Say, I want to change, Jesus. Just take a couple minutes and do that. like crap yet <laughs> here's the good news the good news is that only one person can put their name in here honestly and that's Jesus I mean let's just focus on the first couple right Jesus is patient and kind how patient was God with us that while we were still sinners he sent Christ in his kindness to die for us Jesus gave himself for us on the cross. He was selfless. So if you struggle to love other people, maybe you have broken family relationships, maybe you have broken relationships with other people here right in this room, look to Jesus' example. You know, I made the mistake 
with some leaders in the past of having them memorize Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let's read it, and I'll explain. So Philippians 2, 3, and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Wait a minute, why is that a mistake? That's a great passage. Here's why that's such a mistake. It's just saying, hey, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and serve other people really well. Love other people. Come on, why aren't you loving other people well? With no motivation, with no example. Here's what I should have had them memorize. I should have had them continue in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The way that we start to love each other more effectively is by looking to Jesus' example, not trying really hard. Now, yes, we need to pursue love, make some changes, but we need to do it by looking to Jesus' example, the perfect example of love. We also need to draw strength from his great love to love other people. Paul says in just in his next letter, 2 Corinthians 5.14, Christ's love compels us or Christ's love controls us, it says in some translations. Jesus, his strength, his example, that's what will empower us to love like Paul calls us to love in 1 Corinthians 13. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to love like you loved us, God. You loved us in a way that's, that's incredible, that's unthinkable, that's 